You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Uh, you like that? <laughs> that is my cat uh, enjoying the recording device, stroking himself on it. Okay, so welcome to episode number 180 of the Natural Born... <laughs> I'm trying to record here. Welcome to episode number 180 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month and the time for some pre-recorded talks. This time uh, a talk by Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. And uh, he will be ta- <laughs> he will be talking about his theory morphic resonance. And morphic resonance is basically a process whereby self-organizing systems inherit a memory from previous similar systems. In its most general formulation, morphic resonance means that the so-called laws of nature are more like habits. The hypothesis of morphic resonance also leads to a radically new interpretation of memory storage in the brain and of biological inheritance. Rupert Sheldrake, he was a keynote speaker at the 2013 International Gathering of Eden Energy Medicine sponsored by Donna Eden. This is a gathering of leading-edge thinkers exploring the powerful effects of energy on our bodies, our consciousness and our world. It is his talk from this gathering that we are going to listen to now. So sit back, relax and enjoy Dr. Rupert Sheldrake. I'm going to be speaking about morphic fields and morphic resonance. Um, The big idea is that the laws of nature are more like habits. There's a kind of memory in nature. Things happen as they do because they've happened that way before. Every species has a kind of collective memory. Every individual draws on that collective memory and in turn contributes to it. This idea has many radical implications Uh, for our own lives as well. One of them is that our memories are not stored in our brains. Most people just take it for granted that memories are in the brain. This is one of the ten dogmas of science that I discuss in my book, Science Set Free. Uh, But I'm suggesting instead they depend on a kind of resonance with our own past. The brain's more like a TV receiver than a video recorder. Um, These ideas are, of course, controversial. but they make a great deal more sense of the unexplained mysteries of science um, uh, than the standard theories. I'm suggesting that this kind of memory works through the process I call morphic resonance, the influence of like upon like across space and time. And this memory is carried and expressed through fields called morphic fields, The word morphic comes from the Greek word morphe, meaning form or shape. Uh, These are fields that order self-organizing systems. And they're fields that organize molecules, crystals, cells, organisms, groups of organisms like flocks of birds, um, and underlie the activity of our minds. These fields organize energy. 
And so I'm going to say a few words to start with about the relation of fields and energy. Um, then I'm going to say something more about these fields, uh, how they were discovered in living organisms, um, and how I think they might work. Then I'm going to say more about morphic resonance, and then explore some of the implications. So I've just laid out the big picture. Now I'm going to look at some of the, the, the details. But still part of the big picture is the relation of fields and energy. Energy is one of the unifying principles of science. In the 19th century, one of the greatest triumphs of 19th century science was to see how different forms of energy are interrelated and are all manifestations of the same underlying principle. There's a kind of, there is energy in nature which gives things actuality, activity, movement, change, flow. And there's energy in the whole universe which flows through many different forms. This energy can be converted to other forms of energy. Um, the energy of light can be converted to chemicals in trees and, and build up the trunks of trees. The energy in a slice of toast at breakfast time can fuel you or me uh, for much of the morning. Um, if I eat the slice of toast, it fuels my thoughts. If you eat, it fuels your thoughts. The energy in an electric plug um, can power a toaster, a hairdryer, a computer, a TV set. The energy can do all sorts of different things. It can be converted to one form or another, to mechanical work, to heat, to light, to chemical energy. Um, and yet, these forms of the energy itself is, as it were, completely promiscuous. It doesn't have any shape or form on its own. It's a principle of activity in nature which the Hindus call Shakti. Um, the concept of Shakti, this kind of blind, undirected energy um, underlying all things, is very similar to the modern physical concept. But it takes lots of different forms. And why does it take different forms? Because it's organized by fields. Fields organize energy. Uh, they give energy form or structure. Um, they are not themselves energy, but they organize energy. Energy is not itself a field, but is organized by fields. The concept of fields in science was first put forward by Michael Faraday. We have the first slide. Um, and Faraday uh, worked with magnetic and electric fields. Everyone's seen magnetic fields in, at least they're manifested through iron filings, as in this example. Um, and Faraday was wrestling with the idea of how can a magnet have an influence at a distance? How can it affect iron filings all around it? And he was the first person to come up with the term field in science. And a field is a region of influence. It's inside the magnet, but it stretches out around and beyond the magnet. If you don't have iron filings there, it's invisible. The Earth's magnetic field is running through this room. It's invisible. I have here a compass. I always carry one in my pocket. And when I open it up, I can see where north and south are. It reveals this invisible magnetic field. The Earth's gravitational field is pervading this room. If it wasn't, we'd be floating around, not uh, attached to our chairs or to the floor. Um, 
So fields stretch out beyond material objects. They're in them and beyond them. <coughs> so the field um, is a region of influence. The magnetic field is a region of influence. The electrical field is a region of influence. Light is an electromagnetic field. The light that we're seeing through now is a field. This room's full of invisible electromagnetic influences, radio, television, cell phone fields, and so on. So what are fields made of? When Faraday first put forward the idea of fields, he admitted he didn't know, and he had two hypotheses. Uh, one was that fields were made of subtle matter, because most people in the 19th century were very materialistic, and uh, they thought, well, if they exist, they must be matter. So he thought they were made of subtle matter called ether. The alternative was that they were, as he put it, modifications of mere space. In other words, they were just patterns in space. And Faraday uh, was a very radical thinker, and he thought that instead of fields being made of matter, matter might be made of fields. Now, that idea of his was rejected in the 19th century, and people went for the ether theory, subtle matter. But in 1905, Einstein, in his special theory of relativity, showed that subtle matter, uh, ether, doesn't really exist. Um, that the uh, fields are indeed, as Faraday thought, modifications of mere space. The gravitational field, according to Einstein, is not in space and time, it is space-time. Um, so the gravitational field of the universe contains everything in the universe and gives shape, structure, and order to it all. But what's it made of? Again, it's made of space-time. And existing theories in physics, unifying theories like superstring theory and M-theory, attempt to explain the fields of nature, which now include the quantum matter fields, the fields of electrons, protons, neutrons, and so forth. Um, in terms of an original field of the universe at the beginning of the Big Bang with 10 dimensions or 11 dimensions. Um, and so if we explain these fields of nature, uh, they're explained in terms of a more fundamental field. It's fields all the way down. Um, so it's still mysterious as to what they are. Now, the reason this is relevant to our discussion is that there's another kind of field, or a whole other set of fields, what I call morphic fields in nature, uh, that were first proposed in uh, living organisms in the 19th century. Uh, no, sorry, in the, uh, in the 1920s. Um, this is part of a general transformation of science, which the philosopher of science, Sir Karl Popper, uh, described by saying, through modern physics, materialism has transcended itself. Materialism is the doctrine that everything is ultimately matter, even consciousness. And it's still the dominant uh, worldview of science, and it's that worldview which I uh, critique in my book, Science Set Free, because I think it's time for science to move on from materialism. Um, but it already has, in the sense that matter is no longer the fundamental explanatory principle. People used to think atoms and uh, other particles of matter were solid, enduring stuff. But quantum physics has revealed that they're not. Uh, matter is a process, not a thing. Electrons are waves of activity. They're 
energy bound within fields, in this case electron fields, which are one kind of quantum matter field. Um, so it's fields and energy. In the 1920s, developmental biologists, uh, several different developmental biologists proposed that living organisms are shaped by form-shaping fields called morphogenetic fields. Morphogenesis means the coming into being of form, morphe, form, genesis, coming into being. So morphogenetic fields are fields that underlie the coming into being of form. Why do we need a concept like this? Well, we need it because to explain the way that embryos grow or plants grow from seeds, we have to explain how f new forms appear in nature. The form isn't all there inside the seed. The, the egg has very little structure. I mean, it's a complicated cell, but it doesn't contain a miniature version of a tree or of a frog or whatever. Um, the, as organisms develop, more form comes from less. Nowadays, people often naively think this is just explained by genes. Well, it isn't. As Bruce Lipton clearly explained uh, in his talk, um, genes code for the primary structure of proteins. They code for the sequence of amino acids in protein molecules. They're not programs. They're not blueprints. They're not plans for the whole organism. They enable the organism to make the right proteins. Your arm and your leg contain the same proteins and the same types of cell, and yet they have different shapes. Buildings uh, in a city like this um, contain the same kinds of materials, concrete, reinforcing rods, and so forth, um, timber, uh, and other building materials, yet they have different shapes. It's not just the, shape, the materials that determine the shape. Something else determines the shape. The shape of a building, as we all know, is determined by the architectural plan. Now that plan, although it can be written on a bit of paper, is not in itself part of the material constituents of the building. If you demolish a building, the total amount of matter remains the same if you collect all the dust, um, and, uh, but the plan disappears. If you grind up an animal or plant, as biochemists and molecular biologists do on a regular basis, uh, you destroy the structure and form, and you're left with the kind of rubble, as it were, the molecules, which is what they study and work on. But however much you analyze these molecules, you'll never reveal the form of the organism. That's destroyed in the process of isolating the molecules. So what is it that gives an arm and a leg a different shape? What is it that gives organisms their form? Well, there's something a bit like an architect's plan underlying them, and that is what the morphogenetic field is. It's like an invisible mold shaping influence or form underlying the structure of the organism. That was the idea in the 1920s, uh, because some concept like this is needed uh, to explain how organisms form. Another advantage of the morphogenetic field concept was that fields are inherently holistic, and so are living organisms. You can't have a bit of a field. If you cut a magnet into two bits, you don't get one bit with the North Pole and the other bit with the South Pole. You get two smaller magnets, each with a North and a South Pole. You can't get a slice of the Earth's gravitational field. You either have the whole gravitational field or you don't have one. 
Fields are inherently holistic. Um, and the morphogenetic fields of organisms are inherently holistic too. If you cut a willow tree into small bits, each cutting can grow into a whole new tree. Uh, each cutting contains the full potential for shoots and roots. Um, if you cut a flatworm into small pieces, each part of the flatworm can regenerate into a, into a new flatworm. Um, and this inherent property of fields uh, uh, underlies their holistic organizing uh, capacities. They also enable organisms to heal after disease. And uh, the self-healing capacity of organisms is inherent in everything, in plants, in animals, and in us. Organisms were healing themselves through the self-healing capacities of their fields long before humans evolved. And humans were healing themselves, just like other animals, long before the invention of doctors and medical systems and even energy medicine. Um, the, um, the healing capacities are inherent in living things, and many healing systems work by unleashing or disinhibiting those inherent healing capacities that we all have within us. One reason for thinking that morphogenetic fields shape organisms, um, not just genes, is that single cells have quite complicated forms. If, it was, if, for, if development was just a matter of switching on or off genes, which is what many molecular biologists think, then in a single cell, which has a nucleus and just one lot of genes, uh, it would be hard to see how you could get any pattern or structure in an individual cell. And yet individual cells have very complicated structures. In this slide, um, we see the structure of radiolarians. These are single-celled organisms that live in the sea, and they have shells made of silica. Um, these are different species, and as you see, they have extraordinarily complicated shapes. If it was just a matter of switching on genes in the nucleus of these single-celled organisms, how on earth could just making a particular protein or, or set of proteins result in all these different forms in different species? Here are some images of radiolarians from the 19th century from Ernst Haeckel, who produced these beautiful images of, uh, of, um, image of animals and plants. These are pollen grains from different species. Again, single cells which have different forms. Um, you can recognize different species from the shape of their pollen grains, which is how people can find out what plants grew in the past by looking at pollen grains preserved in bogs. For, uh, uh, um, so uh, pollen grains are another example of single cells which can make complex forms. If it was just proteins diffusing around, this wouldn't happen. If the cell has a field, a shaping field, then uh, it's much easier to understand. This is a single-celled alga. These each of these stalks comes from, is, is stuck onto a, a, a rock or a pebble, um, and each of them has a cap. These are about two inches long, um, and yet they're a single cell with a single nucleus. This is called acetabularia. And this organism forms itself on the basis of proteins uh, that depend on genes uh, in the nucleus in, right in the little root part. But 
Obviously, something more than just diffusing proteins is causing these complex structures. Morphogenetic fields are organized in a nested hierarchy, like everything else in nature. The reductionist type of science tries to reduce everything in nature to the smallest possible level. Originally, they thought if you can explain everything in terms of atoms, then you're home and dry, you've explained nature. But the bottom dropped out of the atom decades ago, um, and we now know atoms consist of nuclei and electrons, and the nuclei consist of protons and neutrons, and those break up into other particles uh, in large hadron colliders and in other particle accelerators, uh, a whole zoo of subatomic particles has now been discovered, um, well over a hundred of them. Um, so there is no longer any sort of firm foundation on which the whole of this edifice of reductionist explanation is supposed to rest. Instead, we find nature is made up of many different levels, and this diagram represents that ordering of nature. The very small circles could be subatomic particles inside atoms, and those in the next level of circles are molecules, and they could be inside crystals. Or the smallest circles could be organelles in cells, and then in tissues, in organs, in organisms, in societies of organisms, in ecosystems. At each level, the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And so we have this nested hierarchy or holarchy of structures, uh, which is how uh, nature as a whole is organized. And that's how morphogenetic fields are organized in living organisms. There's a field for the whole organism, there are fields for each organ, there are fields for each tissue within the organ, fields for the cells, fields for the organelles, fields for the molecules inside those. Um, here's a bat embryo, just to remind you that the whole organism as it develops contains all these different structures. You can see the different bones, uh, the different digits in what will be its wings, the different ribs, uh, the different organs. Each of these has its own uh, morphogenetic field within the overall morphogenetic field of the organism. This idea of organizing fields um, was put forward, as I said, in the 1920s by developmental biologists. And it's still uh, a, con a key concept in developmental biology. Development is modular. Um, you either get a wing in a butterfly or you don't. You either get a limb or you don't. I mean, you can get distorted patterns of development, but basically um, the, the, the pattern of development, if it appears, appears in a kind of modular way. And the morphogenetic field is what organizes these modules of development, including the whole organism. We need this concept because just talking in terms of chemicals simply can't explain uh, morphogenesis. And even in the most hard-nosed uh, biological laboratories working in developmental biology, morphogenetic fields are a key concept. But what are they? This is where there's a difference of opinion. Um, I got onto morphogenetic fields because in, in, for my PhD and when I was doing research at Cambridge on plant morphogenesis, um, I realized that we'll never explain the forms of leaves and petals and stems and roots and the different shapes of different plants just in terms of chemicals and hormones. The same hormones are involved in all plants. 
uh, the same transport systems for the hormones appear in all plants. And yet, they will have different shapes. So there must be something like morphogenetic fields at work in plants. So I became convinced we need this concept. Like many other developmental biologists, I came to that conclusion. But then, when I thought about what are they, I found I differed from my colleagues, because most of my colleagues then and still today um, say, well, morphogenetic fields are just a way of talking about uh, complex physicochemical patterns of activity not yet fully understood. In other words, we don't know. Um, but this is, this is an example of uh, promissory materialism. Uh, Sir Karl Popper said that you know, the materialist worldview has never been proved. It depends on promissory notes issued against future explanations. And uh, the promissory materialist view of development then and still today is, well, we don't yet know the full details, but we just need time to figure it out. When I was a, a student at Cambridge, they Francis Crick and Sidney Brenner, who taught me uh, molecular biology, um, who had just cracked the genetic code, they said, you know, we'll have figured it out in, in 10 or 20 years. Um, they tried to get us to join them. Some of my colleagues did. Some of my fellow students did. Um, and they said, you know, molecular biology is the answer. Um, the two unsolved problems of biology are development of organisms and consciousness. And Brenner said, I'm taking development, and Francis Crick said, I'm taking consciousness, and they said, we'll figure it out within 10 years or maybe 20. Well, that was in the 1960s, and that still hasn't happened, and I don't think it will happen because there's no way that just random collisions of molecules can possibly give rise to organisms any more than random piles of building materials can assemble themselves into buildings. Um, so... The idea that we don't know, but we'll figure it out along existing lines is still the predominant view. You know, well, we don't know the details. We just need more complicated computer models um, and more complex interactions of molecules, and we'll figure it out in 10 years, maybe 20, maybe 50. Um, well, that's an act of faith, not a scientifically proven theory. Um, I just don't believe it. I didn't believe it then. I don't believe it now. And um, everything that's happened since I first got interested in morphogenetic fields, has really confirmed uh, that this approach is not working. Another approach to morphogenetic fields is uh, fairly common within science, and this is usually something put forward by mathematicians who've taken up theoretical biology. Mathematicians and theoretical physicists usually believe in a kind of platonic view of reality. They don't usually admit it in public, but scratch the surface, and you'll find a, a, a Platonist uh, behind most mathematicians or uh, theoretical physicists. By Platonism, I mean the belief that beyond this world we experience and live in, there's a timeless world of ideas. Um, for mathematicians, it's a world of mathematical ideas. This is really a theory first put forward by Pythagoras and his school, which influenced Plato. Uh, that the ultimate reality is mathematical. Beyond time and space, there's this mathematical realm of ideas that's somehow reflected in the world we live in. They think that the answer to morphogenetic fields is to find the morphogenetic field equations which will explain these fields. Um, and so it's just a matter of mathematical modeling. Now, I don't agree with that either, because uh, 
a platonic realm is totally beyond time, and yet we live in an evolutionary universe. Their theory would say the morphogenetic field for the dinosaurs was there as an equation uh, before the Big Bang, uh, at the Big Bang, it existed when the dinosaurs existed, it still exists today, exactly the same, unchanged by anything that actually happens. But biology is radically evolutionary, and indeed so is modern cosmology. Um, so I think that the, uh, the idea that these fields are just shaped for all time by mathematics beyond time and space is a fantasy, really. It's something that appeals to mathematicians, but it just doesn't correspond with an evolutionary reality where things develop according to their history, according to what's happened in the past. There must be some kind of memory uh, underlying these fields. I came to this conclusion when I was working on them. If, if they have a memory, then how would that memory work? If morphogenetic fields could contain an inherent memory of past organisms of the species, this would explain how they could have the form of the species, how they could evolve and change in time. And it would explain many aspects of inheritance. I suddenly realized that if there was a new kind of causation in nature based on similarity working across time and space, uh, a great many things could be explained. And this was basically uh, the idea of morphic resonance. The idea of a resonance of vibratory patterns of activity with similar patterns across space and time. The field of any organism, including you and me, is within and around the organism. But morphic resonance, the influence of past organisms, is not uh, confined to this particular time and place. It can come from the past, from all similar organisms. So this is the idea of morphic resonance, the inherent memory in morphogenetic fields. When I first thought of this idea, I was working at Cambridge, and I was a research fellow of the Royal Society, um, and I thought, oh gosh, this is a really uh, whole new way of looking at things. I tried it out on my colleagues. I found that my friends who were philosophers and historians and in the humanities were very interested in the idea. When I tried it out in my colleagues in the biochemistry department, I found a very different response. I mean, People were just bemused. Why on earth would I want to come up with an idea like this? They all said, you know, you don't need ideas like this. No one said it's wrong, it's illogical. They just said it's unnecessary because we'll figure it all out in terms of molecular biology within 10 or 20 years and it just be completely unnecessary. Um, so um, no one would really engage uh, with the idea because they just thought it was unnecessary. I later worked in India I spent seven years in India. I worked in an agricultural institute, uh, the International Crops Research Institute for the semi-arid tropics in, in Hyderabad. Um, and I was working on crop development. I, at that stage, I was fascinated by morphogenetic fields. I didn't see how I could push this idea forward within science. I wanted to think about it. And in the meantime, I thought I'd work in real fields. Uh, on actual crops that might help people, you know, poor farmers grow crops more effectively. So I was working in India, and I had many Indian friends and colleagues. And I got exactly the opposite response when I was in India. When I talked about morphic resonance, uh, the, the, over and over again, I got the, the same response from my uh, Indian colleagues, uh, Hindus particularly. 
They said, oh, there is nothing new in this idea. He said, ancient rishis have said this thousands of years ago. And I said, you know, it's karma. It is the influence of the past. So, so that I had the exact opposite problem there. They said, there's nothing new. It's complete. Everyone's always known this. Uh, you know, why bother proving it? You know, uh, we've known this all along. Um, so... Um, it's an alien thought for Western philosophy on the whole, but in, in East, in Hindu and Buddhist systems, it's completely taken for granted that there's a causation working through or across time. Anyway, because I'm a Westerner and because I'm a scientist, the key thing is how do you actually test this idea? How do you prove it? How could you get experimental evidence for this? And this has been one of the, my abiding preoccupations now for, for years. And the theory can be tested in many different ways. One is in the realm of chemistry and crystallography. The theory says that if you make a new chemical compound for the first time and you crystallize it, uh, there won't be a morphogenetic field for that crystal to start with because it's never existed before. But after you've made the first lot of crystals, then if you try and make the same kind of crystal anywhere else in the world, the second time it should be a bit easier because of morphic resonance from the first crystals. And the third time it should be easier still because of morphic resonance from the first and the second crystals. The fourth time easier yet again because of resonance from the first, second and third crystals. Um, so this influence will build up cumulatively, enabling things to get easier to happen as time goes on as habits build up in nature through this kind of collective memory. I talked to a colleague in Cambridge who's a crystallographer, and I said, have people ever noticed it gets easier to crystallize things as time goes on? He said, yes, of course. So he said, this is a completely well-known fact. Uh, I said, well, how do you explain it? He said, well, he said the usual explanation is that fragments of previous crystals get carried from lab to lab on the beards of migrant chemists. Uh, and, and contaminate the crystallizing dishes. And, uh, and I said, what if there haven't been any migrant chemists? He said, oh, well, that's just the little bits of it get wafted around the world in the atmosphere as invisible dust particles. So here's a test. Do the, uh, uh, do, do, ha have a laboratory where you exclude migrant chemists and uh, filter out dust particles. They should still crystallize more easily. There's many examples. Uh, I summarize this in my book, A New Science of Life, the new edition of which in the US is called Morphic Resonance. Um, I have uh, the new updated edition contains many examples of uh, things that get easier to crystallize. The latest example came to my attention only two days ago. Uh, someone sent me a paper that's just appeared in a leading chemical journal about co-crystals of benzoic acid and caffeine. Um, co-crystals are way two different compounds form a crystal together, sort of one caffeine, one benzoic acid, one caffeine, one benzoic acid. Years ago, people predicted on theoretical grounds it should be possible to make co-crystals of benzoic acid and caffeine. And yet, for some reason, no one could ever make them. And this became a kind of holy grail of people working in the limited field of co-crystal studies. Um, anyway, people have been trying for years to do this. I don't know why, but they have. And <laughs> someone had the idea that if they made a derivative of benzoic acid with fluorine in it, 
they might be able to make co-crystals of that, and they should be similar to co-crystals of benzoic acid and caffeine, and they could use those as seeds or nuclei to start the process off. Well, they did that, and it worked. So they got these co-crystals of caffeine and benzoic acid uh, for the first time, and everyone was delighted to find this. And then it turned out they were, anyone could do it. It's, it's, it's now been uh, happening in, in uh, labs in a way that, uh, is, as they put it in this paper, um, can't be explained by any detectable amounts of these seeds or nuclei. I have a chemist friend who drew this to my attention, and um, I emailed back and I said, look, your lab uh, has never worked on any of these things, and if you made the co-crystals there, the idea that there was some contamination from these other laboratories would be very hard to do, you know, it would be almost impossible to believe that, and this would be a really good test. I got an email yesterday morning saying, I'm on it. So he's working, he's going to do this. So um, uh, this, this is rather thrilling that right in the heart of chemistry there are great mysteries and some of the best tests for morphic resonance could be in, the, in, in, in chemistry. Well, the same, uh, it, it applies to biology. If organisms develop in an abnormal way, then uh, other organisms should develop that way um, uh, more easily. And indeed, there's evidence that that uh, actually happens. In my book, The Presence of the Past, I discuss experiments with fruit flies that show that uh, if they develop abnormally, uh, the more often that happens, the easier it gets for other organisms to develop that way. The same theory applies to the organization of the nervous system. When the system has grown through morphogenetic fields, the way the activity of the nervous system, which is otherwise highly indeterminate, the way it's organized is, I think, through fields that organize behavior called behavioral fields. These are a kind of morphic field too. The word morphic field is a generic name that applies to morphogenetic fields that shape development, behavioral fields that shape behavior, social fields that shape social groups like flocks of birds, uh, mental fields that underlie mental activity. All of these are morphic fields and all, I think, have a memory uh, owing to morphic resonance. The theory can be tested in the realm of animal behavior. It says that if you train rats to learn a trick in one place, a new trick, rats all around the world should be able to learn the same trick quicker. And when I first thought of this, I thought, well, this can't be true, because if, if it was true, people would have noticed it. I then looked in the archives of rat psychology and found that people had noticed it. Um, there, a remarkable series of experiments that was begun at Harvard um, um, trained rats to escape from a water maze. And in their experiments, they found that subsequent generations of rats learned quicker um, than the original ones. They got quicker and quicker uh, in, over the generations. And their critics said that's impossible. It shows an inheritance of acquired characteristics, which in the 20th century was the biggest heresy in biology. It's now mainstream under the name epigenetics. Um, but um, they said this, uh, this must be uh, some kind of artifact. You must have been breeding from the smartest rats without being aware of it, and so it was just a natural selection or an artificial selection for intelligence. So the person doing the experiment called William McDougall said, okay, I'll do the experiment again, but this time we'll take the most stupid rats in each generation as the parents of the next. So the number of errors should increase generation by generation instead of decrease. In fact, 
uh, what they found was that the number of, in this slide, um, the number of errors in each generation decreased. The, there's 22 generations here along the bottom axis. The number of errors is on the vertical axis. And you see a, a very, very striking fall in the, number of gen, uh, in the number of errors. And these are in the stupid rats, the ones in each generation uh, selected for stupidity. Because this was so striking, these experiments were replicated in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, and in Melbourne, Australia. And the Scottish and the Australian rats started more or less where the uh, Harvard rats had left off. And, <coughs> and they continued to get better. They, it, in some rats learned it straight away without any errors at all. The Australian results were the most interesting because they had a control line. In each generation, they tested rats that whose parents had never been exposed to the stimulus. So it couldn't have been inherited either genetically or epigenetically. And yet they got better too. Now, that's exactly what you'd expect on the basis of morphic resonance, but not on the basis of any other uh, hypothesis. Now, the same should happen to people. As I show in the new edition of Morphic Resonance, um, many experiments have now been done to test this hypothesis in the human realm with human learning. It should be getting easier for people to learn computer programming, windsurfing, skateboarding, uh, any number of skills, uh, because so many people have already learned them. Now, in the real world, it's hard to tease apart the influence of morphic resonance from videos and the internet and better teaching methods and so forth. But, um, in some areas, there have been standardized procedures used for many years where we can actually look for changes over time. And in the 1980s, I predicted that one such area would be IQ tests. IQ tests were invented uh, during the First World War and uh, uh, ways of trying to assess people's intelligence. The same tests were used for years and still are used for years. Um, now, I predicted that IQ test scores should be going up, average IQ test scores should be going up, not because people are getting smarter, but because the tests should be getting easier, uh, because uh, so many people have already done them. But I couldn't find the data, and I just didn't know how to burrow into the IQ test archives. But somebody did this in the late 1980s and found exactly this effect. The person who did it is called James Flynn, and this is called the Flynn effect. Um, uh, here are data from the US, uh, which show from 1918 to 1989 uh, an improvement which is still going on. There was about a 30% increase in intelligence. Now, there's no evidence that Americans are actually 30% more intelligent. Uh, <laughs> they're just doing better at IQ tests. And something similar has happened all over the world. Um, so this seems to be... Uh, 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 it's an effect which Flynn was baffled by, and there's been a huge debate about this. Is it TV? No. Is it diet? No. Is it all sorts of methods, things have been tried to explain it, but none have succeeded in explaining it. I think it's a morphic resonance effect. Um, and um, uh, so here is just one example which shows changes uh, which this theory could explain, um, which are otherwise very hard to explain. What this hypothesis suggests is that inheritance is not just a matter of genes or even epigenetic modification of genes. A great deal of it depends on the inheritance through morphic resonance of form and behavior. In fact, I think most inheritance depends on 
form and morphic resonance. Um, so in the 1980s, when I came to this conclusion, I, I went around saying that I thought genes were grossly overrated and advised any of my friends with money not to invest in these the bubbles of what I predicted would be bubbles of the genome project and so forth and, and biotechnology and genomics. Because I said, you know, it's based on a false assumption that genes control everything, whereas I don't think they do. Well, it turns out that they don't. The, the, there's a recent discovery, which some of you may not have heard about, because it's not been widely publicized outside the scientific world, uh, turned up in the last three or four years. As Bruce Lipton said, genes uh, were revealed by the Genome Project to be far fewer than people expected. They expected 100,000 human genes. There are only about 22,000. That was the first big shock. The second big shock, which you didn't mention, is the missing heritability problem. This turned, out, turned up through things called genome-wide association studies, where they've got the genomes of 30,000 different people, and they've compared them to find out which genes do what. And they started with something very simple, height. Now, we all know that height is heritable. Tall parents tend to have tall children. Short parents tend to have short children. And if you just measure people with tape measures and make an allowance for changes in diet, because there's a generational increase in height, uh, take that into account. You can predict uh, the height of children on the basis of the parent's height with an accuracy of about 80%, just using a tape measure. Um, height is 80% uh, heritable, to use the technical word for this. Well, they looked for height genes, and they found there's about 50 genes involved in controlling height. And they made the best models they could, uh, balancing the different effects of these genes and so forth. And then they f took at random genomes of different people and predicted their height on the basis of the genes. They then looked up the actual height to see how well the predictive model was working. And it turned out they could predict the height of people with an accuracy of 5%. <laughs> now, this is after spending billions of dollars on, uh, on the genome project. You can do it with an accuracy of 80% using a tape measure. Um, so this was a very big shock, and it turned out that the accuracy of prediction of most diseases was about 5% too. Um, some diseases, cystic fibrosis, which are caused by single genes, can be, you know, those, you've got a higher sickle cell anemia. Uh, there's a few where you get a high degree of prediction, which was already known. But for most diseases, uh, it's extraordinarily low level of prediction. The same happens even with identical twin studies. You, if, if you look at the diseases of identical twins, uh, you can predict the frequency of heart attacks and that sort of thing with an accuracy of only about 10%. It's, so this is called the missing heritability problem. Um, and it's the, because the difference between the 5% you can predict on the basis of genes and the 80% that is known from um, uh, more direct measurements of heredity uh, means that 75% of inheritance is not explained, the missing heritability problem. Well, I think this is because most of heritability depends on morphic resonance, not genes or even epigenetics. Now, morphic resonance depends on similarity. So the more similar something is with something in the past, the greater the resonance. When you have 
humans, uh, identical twins are the most similar, and there are indeed many similarities between identical twins, not as much as people thought, but there's still uh, a great many similarities between identical twins. I don't think that necessarily proves that they're all genetic or epigenetic. I think identical twins would have a particularly strong morphic resonance with each other, so that something that happens to one uh, may influence the other. It's not like destiny or fixed, the degree of correlation isn't that high. But nevertheless, there are some very striking examples, usually interpreted to mean it's all in the genes. I don't think it is. The nature-nurture debate usually revolves around identical twin studies separated soon after birth. Uh, but what people don't take into account is that morphic resonance could explain many of the available data. If you ask the question, who in the past is most similar to you in the present, the answer is yourself. We're all more similar to ourselves in the past than we are to anyone else. And therefore, I think we're subject to the uh, highest amount of morphic resonance from our own pasts. That's why I think memory depends on self-resonance with ourselves in the past, uh, not on uh, memories being stored inside the brain. Now, it's been taken for granted as part of the materialist view of life that memories must be inside the brain, the mind is the brain, the brain is material, memories are part of the mind, therefore they must be materially stored in the brain. It's been taken for granted, not just by scientists, but by most other people as well, um, that memories are inside the brain. Well, the evidence is surprisingly thin. The only real evidence is that brain damage can lead to memory loss. But that doesn't prove the memories are stored in the brain. Attempts to find localized memory traces have been made many, many times, and they've failed over and over again. In the 1960s, one researcher uh, said, memories seem to be both everywhere and nowhere in particular. And it's because of the failure to find localized traces that Carl Pribram put forward his holographic theory of memory, that they're stored holographically over large regions of the brain. But I don't think they need be stored in the brain at all. The evidence for memory storage in the brain is extremely weak. We know that certain bits of the brain become active when memories are laid down, particularly the hippocampus. We know that certain regions become active when they're uh, being retrieved. But in between, people just don't know where the memories have gone. And they've spent years and years and billions of dollars millions and millions of man-hours and careers and stuff have been spent in this futile quest to find memories. And I think the reason they haven't found them is because they're not there. It's like me trying to find out what you watched on TV last night by analyzing the wires and transistors in your TV set. I won't find traces of what you watched because that's not how TV works. Um, so this leads to a radically different view of memory. It also, like many of these ideas, has much wider implications. If memories are not stored inside your brain, uh, it has very wide-ranging implications for theories of survival. One reason materialists like the idea that memories are in the brain is that everyone, if, if, you, when I was an atheist, I, when I was an undergraduate, I, I was an atheist, and this is an argument I particularly liked. Uh, atheists today enjoy employing it with uh, you know, religious people. Um, so, do you believe in survival of bodily death? And they say, yes. And they say, do you believe memories are stored in the brain? And most people say, of course. And they say, what happens to the brain when you die? Well, it decays. What happens to the memories stored in the brain when you, when you die? Oh. 
as a deafening silence. They must decay too. So how can any form of survival uh, take place if memories are stored in the brain? All theories of survival require the survival of memory. Reincarnation requires the survival at least of tendencies and habits from one life to the other. Um, some people who believe in that we sleep, go to sleep when we die and we wake at the last trump to meet our maker for the judgment day, uh, that requires some kind of memory too, because if you appear before your maker and you've forgotten who you are and what you've done, uh, <laughs> the last judgment wouldn't be very meaningful. Um, um, theories of continued survival in a kind of dreamlike realm, which is how I understand purgatory, a kind of ongoing development after death, that too requires memory. Yet, if memories are in the brain, they're all wiped out at death and forget all those theories. We're just in a bleak atheistic world where nothing can possibly survive. The idea there in the brain, though, is just an assumption. And it's an assumption that scientific evidence doesn't really support. In fact, the failure to find them over so many years strongly suggests something else is happening. And the morphic resonance theory, which which can explain so many other phenomena, it just gives us a completely different way of looking at the nature of memory. It doesn't prove there's survival after death. It leaves the question open, whereas the conventional theory leaves that question closed. Now, I think that morphic fields apply to groups of animals as well, that whole groups can have uh, morphic fields, uh, here in this slide, um, we see um, a flock of starlings. Uh, these birds fly in enormous flocks, and they can change direction almost simultaneously without bumping into each other. Not only do they know where which birds that the other birds are turning, they know where they're going to go, otherwise they'd all bump into each other. Here we see some more shots of these astonishing displays of group activity with the flocks of starlings. And here's a school of fish. Uh, we, and fish show very much the same pattern. When the school changes direction, or, or when a predator approaches them, uh, they can move extraordinarily fast without bumping into each other, yet retaining a connection, uh, 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 the right relationship to other members of the group. The best computer models of these phenomena today are field models. They treat it as if the whole group is a field a bit like a magnetic field. The individuals contribute to the field of the group, and the group in, in influences the way the individuals behave. And I think these are morphic fields. And I think that um, groups of animals have morphic fields. And the fields connect the different members of the group. Human groups have them too, football teams, families, uh, societies, um, nations. They have their own morphic fields with their own habits, their own memories. Uh, their own patterns of behavior. This connection between members of groups through morphic fields has many implications. It means that family groups would have a kind of field of the whole family, um, and that the uh, habits inherited from previous generations of the family would have an unconscious influence on the way people behave within that group. This is something which is uh, practically explored through uh, family constellation work. My wife, Jill, does this kind of work, and it's an extraordinarily effective form of uh, family therapy because it treats the whole family as a field with memories inherent, often unconscious, within the whole family group. 
Now, I think animals in the wild have these fields that link them together even when they're separate. In wolf packs, for example, when adult wolves go out hunting, they leave the cubs in the den, usually with a babysitter, and they range over hundreds of miles in Canada and in Alaska. Um, however, the field of the group is not destroyed by them going apart. I think it stretches. It's like an invisible elastic band that continues to connect them. And I think this connection through the field is the basis for a form of communication that can happen between bonded members of groups at a distance, which we call telepathy. I think telepathy is normal, not paranormal, natural, not supernatural, and is a form of communication between members of animal groups in nature, in the wild. Uh, there's already evidence that suggests that members of wolf packs are telepathic with each other uh, at great distances beyond the range of normal communication. There's an analogy for this in quantum physics. If two particles have been part of the same group, uh, uh, part of the same system, and they move apart, they remain connected at a distance, entangled, so a change in one instantly affects the other. If animal, members of animal groups have been together interacting and they move apart, I think there's a similar kind of entanglement. I think it depends on the morphic field. Quantum physics provides an analogy. I'm not saying it's the same thing, uh, but it's very similar. And quantum entanglement does not fall off with distance, and neither does telepathy seem to do so. Because I think telepathy is a normal means of communication between members of animal groups, and because I think it's something that morphic field theory would make much easier to understand, um, I started doing research in this taboo area of science um, uh, with animals, because I think it's uh, something most likely to occur in animals. And I found no one had done research on this before. It was a completely virgin field of inquiry, because there's a huge taboo about these things within science. And, um, and yet, the data are easy to gather. I started asking people if they'd ever noticed that their animals were telepathic with them, picking up their thoughts and intentions. I appealed for information. I soon had hundreds. I now have about 5,000 different reports on a database. Um, and I found there are many ways in which people's animals seem to respond to their intentions. Um, the fact people tell these stories doesn't prove they're true, but it does prove that lots of people have noticed the same kind of thing, and it's uh, the best way to build up a natural history. I then find out by investigation, by experiment, if they're true or not, but I first find out what people have noticed. One thing people have noticed with cats, for example, is they seem to know when they plan to take them to the vet. The cats disappear. <laughs> uh, and I have hundreds of stories about this from all over the world. So we did a survey in London uh, to find out uh, whether vets had noticed this, and we rang up all 65 veterinary clinics in the North London Yellow Pages uh, and asked them if they'd ever noticed uh, that people missed appointments with their cats because the cats had disappeared. 64 out of 65 said, it happens all the time. And the remaining clinic said, it happens so often we've given up the appointment system for cats. People just... <laughs> People just have to arrive with their animals. Um, so one of the commonest kinds of behavior uh, that people have noticed is animals knowing when they're going to go away or when they're coming home. Um, many people have dogs and cats that know when they're coming home. They go and wait at a door or a window 
uh, when they're on the way home. And the people at home know when the absent person is coming because of the behavior of the dog or the cat. I have more than a thousand of the stories about dogs doing this and more than 600 of cats doing it and some of parrots doing it and some of horses and other animals. It's not just confined to dogs and cats. Uh, so what's going on? Well, the skeptics have the usual armchair skeptical arguments. You know, it's just coincidence. Um, well, it's not because many people have noticed it over and over again. It's just routine. Well, it's not because many people have non-routine homecomings and the people at home know when they're coming because of the behavior of the animal. Uh, or it's just the animal picking up anticipation on the part of the people at home. Well, it's not because many people um, don't know when the other person's coming. It's the animal that tells them, not the other way around. Um, but this is something you can do experiments on. Well, first of all, I did surveys to find out how common this is. And um, on this slide, uh, you see the results of surveys that I did in Britain and in the United States. As you see, about 50% of dog owners in a random survey um, said that their dogs anticipate arrivals, and about, on average, about 30% of cats did this. For some reason, the American cats in California did it more than British cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even in Los Angeles, uh, where animals were best at this, uh, cats did it less than dogs. Now, does this prove cats are less sensitive? Well, not really. I think it just proves that cats are often less interested. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid our own cat is a sorry disappointment to me. I mean, when we get home, it barely looks up from the sofa when I walk into the room. Uh, it is more interested in our sons coming home, but it's, uh, I, I unfortunately can't do experiments with it at home. Um, but I have done many experiments now on the subject. Um, they're summarized in my book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home and Other Unexplained Powers of Animals. We do experiments where we film the place the dog waits the whole time the person's out. We have them come home at random times they don't know in advance. We tell them that by cell phone or pager. Um, and they come home in unfamiliar vehicles, so there's no familiar car sounds. And over and over again, these dogs go and wait uh, up to half an hour or more before they come home. When they, and they respond to their intention to come home. They have to intend to come home before they get in the car or the taxi. And it's the intention that they're responding to. Some dogs don't do it as sensitively as that. They only do it 10 minutes or even two or three minutes in advance. But this kind of behavior is quite common. How many people here have got animals that know when a member of the family is coming home? Well, that's quite a lot of people just in this room. Um, this, by the way, would be a great project for school science fairs. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to encourage the Institute of Noetic Sciences to give a prize for the best project in a school science fair on pets knowing when their owners are coming home. Easy to do. The cameras are now very cheap to buy. Uh, be, it's a great project for, for, for children. And university people are terrified of doing this kind of research because they know their career would just fall into ruins if they were known to be doing research on psychic pets. But uh, <laughs> high school students, on the whole, have no such inhibition. So I think that's the best place to get this work done. Um, um, so there are many examples of telepathy in animals. And I'm just going to end by saying a little bit about telepathy in humans. I think the same principles apply. And one of the areas that uh, uh, I, c I collect stories about this from people too, 
And one of the kinds of stories I heard from many women was that uh, they felt they had a telepathic link with their babies. Many women told me that when they were nursing their babies, uh, they just knew when their baby needed them. If they were away from the baby at a party or shopping or at work, even at a non-routine feeding time, uh, many women said they would feel their milk let down. Their, many women feel their breasts tingle, they start squeezing out milk. And this is the so-called milk let down reflex. Um, triggered by oxytocin. Normally, it happens when the baby starts crying um, and the mother, the breasts get ready to feed the baby. But when women feel this happen when they're away from the baby, they usually assume, my baby needs me. And they're very often right. Um, and I've done a, a study on nursing mothers in London, two months each, with 19 different nursing mothers, where we looked at the exact time the milk let down and what was happening to the baby at that time. We had a continuous record of the mother and of the baby while they were apart. And it turned out this was a very, very uh, highly correlated. There was a, uh, it was highly significant. It, there were a few false alarms, a few times the mothers didn't pick it up. But on the whole, uh, the odds against it being a chance response were about a billion to one. It was a highly significant effect. This would be a great research project for people in colleges of midwifery or uh, nursing. Uh, I'm the only person, as far as I know, who's done this. And it makes tremendous sense um, evolutionarily. Um, mothers that are sensitive to their baby's needs at a distance will have babies that survive better than mothers that aren't sensitive. Um, so it's not just trivial, this sort of thing. It's, it's uh, something that makes good biological sense. Finally, the most... Uh, important, uh, at least common, kind of telepathy in the modern world happens in connection with technology, particularly telephones. Many people have had the experience of thinking of someone for no particular reason, then the phone rings and it's that person on the phone. They say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. Um, or else, when the phone rings, before they look at the caller ID or before they pick it up, they just know who it is. Um, I've done surveys uh, my stories that I got from people showed that this is very, very common. So I did quantitative surveys, uh, which are shown here in this slide. Um, and we looked at people in the UK, Germany, uh, the US, and Argentina. And on the left, you see the figures for women and for men in these countries who've had this experience. With women, it's over 95% uh, in different countries. With men, it's more variable. It's uh, over 70%, but there was a national difference here. Women everywhere were very sensitive to this. Men less so, um, but there were national differences. The most sensitive men were in Argentina and the least sensitive were in Britain. Um, <laughs> um, other forms of telepathy are also common, as you see on the right-hand side of the slide. Again, women more than men. Uh, again, more than half the population have had these, but the commonest experiences happen with telephone telepathy. Now, when I discussed this with my skeptical colleagues, I found they came up with a standard skeptical armchair argument. Most of you have probably heard it. They look back, they sit back looking sort of sage and scientific and, and, and wise and say, well, how do you know it's not just coincidence? You think about people all the time. If one of them rings, you might imagine it's telepathy, uh, but you just forget all the times you're wrong. Yes. Okay, it's a hypothesis, but if, you, if someone says that, you say, well, have you got any evidence about how many times people think of other people and how many times they're wrong? 
No evidence at all, not a shred of it. Not a single study had ever been done on this. And yet, for 100 years, skeptics have got away with this argument, an evidence-free hypothesis. So I decided to try and test it. Um, is it just coincidence? In my basic experiment, I find people who have this experience quite often, and I film them at home with a landline phone with no caller ID. They're continuously videotaped. They give me the names and numbers of four people they know well, um, we then uh, test their, uh, we then uh, call one of them at random, uh, selected at random by the throw of a die. They call that person. Before they pick, when the phone rings, before they pick it up, they have to guess who it is. I think it's John. Pick it up. Hi, John. You're right or you're wrong. By chance, you'd be right 25%, one in four uh, of the time. In fact, in these experiments, as you see on the left, the chance level, on the right, uh, the actual results with hundreds of trials, uh, a hit rate of 45%. Way above chance, the p-value is 1 times 10 to the minus 12. Uh, that means it's a hugely significant result. It's much more significant than the existence of the Higgs boson, um, but um, has, has had rather less publicity. Um, anyway, uh, we also did tests where two of the four callers were familiar and others the other two unfamiliar. Uh, and with the familiar people, people were right more than 50% of the time. With the unfamiliar people, more or less at chance levels. Telepathy typically, typically happens with people you know well. Uh, this is a new way of testing for telepathy. It's given highly significant positive results. We've done experiments between Britain and Australia, no effective distance, um, higher hit rates with familiar callers. It's been replicated at several different universities. It's a perfect thing for student projects. And I now have uh, an automated version of this test, which I invite you to try. It's on my website uh, at the online experiments portal. Um, you put in the names and cell phone numbers of two people. Uh, this one just works with two callers. The computer picks one of the two at random, sends them a text message asking you to call them uh, at a landline number, which is the computer. You call that number, puts you on hold. The computer calls the subject. The cell phone ID thing says telephone telepathy test. You answer it. It says, this is your telephone telepathy test. One of you, your two callers is on the line right now waiting to speak to you. Please guess who it is. Press 1 for Anne, press 2 for Bill. And you guess. Uh, it records your guess, and the line opens up, so you get instant feedback. Then after a minute, it cuts off because I'm paying for the call. <laughs> and, uh, and after a random time delay, uh, you do it again. You do six trials, and then everyone gets a text message uh, saying how, how the subject is done. You, know, you got four out of six or whatever. Anyway, this is coming in with uh, results way above chance. So um, this is, again, a, a very good experiment for a high school project. And again, most people in universities are terrified of doing this research. Even if they're privately interested, they're terrified. That in the US, I think there's only one university where parapsychology is taught. I think there's three full-time researchers in parapsychology. This is totally taboo, not because people aren't interested, not because it's expensive or difficult, but because the materialist taboo system, the, the, this belief system, is so strong. Even though most scientists any, don't any longer believe it, in public they pretend to. Um, anyway, this is just one of the many implications of morphic fields and morphic resonance. 
And I think what's happening in energy medicine is uh, uh, an interaction with the morphic field of the body, the interaction of the fields and energy. Energy always interacts with fields. The way the energy flows depends on the fields. So I think in your practice, many of you are actually dealing with these principles. Um, uh, none of us exa know in exact detail how they work. Uh, a lot of people don't know how a lot of drugs work, even in regular medicine. Uh, but what we know is that certain things do work, and uh, only by doing research on them will we find out more. I think that science has been held back for a long time by this dogmatic materialism that came to dominate it in the 19th century. I think as we free science from that, it'll become much more interesting, much more fun, uh, and probably a lot cheaper as well. Thank you. And for more information regarding this gathering, go to learnenergymedicine.com. And for more information about Rupert Sheldrake, visit sheldrake.org. I appreciate that you listen to this podcast. I often ask myself if this podcast even exists if no one is listening. And as far as I know, people are. So thank you for doing that. If you want to support the podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. A link can also be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. If you become a Patreon, you'll get access to new episodes before everyone else, as well as access to a bunch of other rants, recordings, deleted material and behind the scenes. I call this place in the digital space the Round Table of the Divine Mystery. So please join us, patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. So let's ease our way out of this episode with the song Dracula by White Lighters from the album Dracula slash Crybaby. Go to whitelighters13.bandcamp.com to check out more of their music. I also link it in the program notes as usual. Please review, reblog, share, like or post the podcast in social media and spread the word. Don't spread it too much. We want to remain under the radar. Most importantly, take it easy. See you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind. Mm -hmm.